Well, good morning. Please turn in your Bible to Isaiah 45. We're going to look at two parables today, a parable about a potter and about a parent from Isaiah 45. But before I read the passage to you, I want to give a quick reminder about the passage we last studied uh, last Sunday. Uh, We looked at Isaiah 43, and we saw in Isaiah 43 God comforting Judah with these words. But now, thus says Yahweh, your Creator, O Jacob, and He who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior." Just by way of review, I would remind you that those words were originally spoken by God to Judah through Isaiah, right? But as new covenant believers, we can also find great comfort in those words because the same God who spoke that comfort to national Israel says through the psalmist that He is your Creator who knitted you together in your mother's womb. If you've confessed your sins and placed your faith in Christ, the New Testament says that the Holy One of Israel has become your Savior now, not just Jacob's Savior. You've been called by His name through Christ, and your core identity is now an adopted son or daughter of God. And according to Romans chapter 5 and James 1 and 1 Peter 1, when you pass through the waters of suffering, they will not overflow you. When you pass through the fires of trials, they will not burn you. In fact, the New Testament clarifies that we have uh, three hopes in the middle of our suffering. The New Testament makes it clear that God's love is manifest towards us, not so much in preventing us from ever having to go through any suffering. It's not that. It's that He promises His presence with us to help us through the suffering. He promises to give us grace to meet our need in the middle of that difficulty. And then third, He promises that in the long run, He will use that suffering for our good to refine and perfect our faith. In Romans 8, 28, Paul sums it up this way, God causes all things to work together for good to those that love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. And so, even though Isaiah 43 was written to Israel, those words are still relevant for us as New Covenant Christians. Isaiah 53 was, I admit, it was a fun passage to preach last week. Uh, I found great comfort in it, and uh, the closest thing I could compare it to, it was like a a warm hug from an affectionate and good and loving Father. That's what Isaiah 43 was. Which leads us then, as we come to Isaiah 45, sorry, 45, uh, it leads us to just a moment of congregational participation. I know that not all of you were here to hear last week's uh, sermon, but for those of you who were here, I have a question for you, and please, you know, speak it, say it out loud. Uh, Were you comforted by Isaiah 43 last week? Were you encouraged? All right, good, because the passage we come to this morning is different. (laughs) It's going to be a different message this morning. Because there comes a moment in the life of every child where what they need from their father is not a warm hug, and they don't need their father to tell them what they want to hear. They need their father to tell them what they need to hear. 
And that's what we come to, honestly, in Isaiah 45. Uh, Let's read the text together, starting in Isaiah 45, verse 1. In Isaiah 45, verse 1, we read, Thus says Yahweh to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I've taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places so that you may know that it is I, Yahweh, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, I have also called you by your name. I have given you a title and honor, though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am Yahweh, who does all these. Drip down, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds pour down righteousness. Let the earth open up, and salvation bear fruit, and righteousness spring up with it. I, Yahweh, have created it. Woe to the one who quarrels with his Maker, an earthenware vessel among the vessels of the earth. Will the clay say to the potter, what in the world are you making? Or the thing that is being made say, it looks like the person who made me has no hands. Woe to him who says to his father, what in the world are you begetting? And to his mother, what were were you thinking giving birth to me? Thus says Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel and His Maker, how dare you tell me what to do with my children? Go ahead and command me what I should do with the work of my hands. After all, I'm only your creator. It is I who made the earth and created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands, and I ordained all their host. I have aroused him in righteousness, and I will make all his ways smooth. He, that is to say Cyrus, will build my city and will let my exiles go free without any payment or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Now, these verses easily divide down into two parts. In verses 1 through 7, we see Yahweh addressing a person named Cyrus. And then in verses 8 through 13, God gives two parables about a potter and a parent, and He deals with an objection to Cyrus, uh, but then ends up, He comes back around to the main point of the prophecy He's making in verse 13 and sums up the way that He's going to use Cyrus in the life of Israel. And uh, before we look at verses 1 through 7 together, uh, these verses are addressed to Cyrus, there are three observations I want to make. The first is that in addressing Cyrus, God is addressing a person not yet born. Um, Historians tell us that the exact year of Cyrus's birth has been lost to us in terms of history and archaeology, but they tell us that it was approximately 140 years after Isaiah gave this prophecy that Cyrus was born. So, what we're in here is a prophetic passage. God is giving a prophecy about future events. 
The second thing to note about these verses is that even though God is addressing Cyrus, God also meant for the people of Judah to overhear these words. Um, God was calling His shot ahead of time. He was telling His people what He was going to do ahead of time so that they would see that He is the only true God, not these uh, gods of foreign nations that in Isaiah's day they were giving their hearts away to. But it's not just Cyrus and it's not just the people of Israel that God spoke these words for. The Apostle Paul says that all the words in the entire Old Testament were also written with us in mind. In Romans 15.4, we read, what was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. We were also meant to overhear this prophecy given by Isaiah and grow in our faith. The third thing I want to note about uh, the context here, verses 1 through 7, is that there is an ever-expanding purpose of God in giving this prophecy, right? At first, God says He's speaking these words ahead of time so that Cyrus would uh, come to know and believe in and worship Him. But then, and that's verse 3. But then over in verse 4, He says He's giving this prophecy and doing what He's going to do with Cyrus for the sake of His people Israel, and then yet later in verse 6, He says He's giving this prophecy so that all people, regardless of what culture or what period of history they live in, when they read about this prophecy, they would also know that Yahweh alone is the true God. And so, there's really three audience, uh, audiences God is giving this prophecy for, for Cyrus as an individual, but for His people Israel who are going to go through a Babylonian captivity, and yet also for all who would ever hear and understand the prophecy and the history surrounding it. So, as we look at the first seven verses together quickly, let's uh, break down our outline of those first seven verses based on those three audiences. Let's start with what God is saying to Cyrus as an individual. Look again at verses 1 through 3. God says to Cyrus, uh, thus says Yahweh to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open up doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places so that you may know that it is I, Yahweh, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. In the paragraph that comes just before this one, God calls out Cyrus by name, and He says He's going to use Cyrus for Israel's good. Now, the problem with that is that it's one thing for people to accept by faith that future events are going to be used by God for their good. That's one thing. But when those events start unfolding, to still believe that it's all going to work out for good in the end, that can be hard, especially if those events are scary. I mean, think with me for a moment about the Babylonian captivity. Some of the Jews who have this prophecy uh, from Isaiah, Jews of later generations after Isaiah's death, they're going to go into the captivity. And when they went into the captivity, God told them, 
pray for the peace and work for the peace of whatever town I send you to in the captivity, because however it goes for that town is how it's going to go for you. So, you end up with a couple generations of Jews who go into the captivity. They're in Babylon. They still retain their own ethnicity, their own family ties, uh, and their own worship of Yahweh, and yet they integrate with the culture. They speak the language. They integrate with Babylonian culture. Well, what's going to happen when this Persian king shows up on the scene threatening to invade the nation that they've assimilated into. That's going to be scary. And those people need to know that this Persian king Cyrus is someone God is actually going to use for their good. He, he will probably be scary when he comes onto the scene to that generation, but he's going to be used for their good. Now, to the generation of Isaiah's day, when Isaiah first spoke these words, I believe that what Isaiah says here would have been absolutely scandalous to them because of the titles given to Cyrus. In chapter 44, verse 28, God calls Cyrus a shepherd. In other words, God is going to use Cyrus to shepherd His people Israel. And it, <laughs> Cyrus is a Gentile name. That's not like a Hebrew name, right? So, it's obvious to everybody from the beginning, this is going to be a Gentile person. And then not only that, in, verse, uh, in chapter 45, verse 1, God calls Cyrus His anointed. Now, to understand that, you need to know two things. To this point in God's revelation to Israel, I think this is happening uh, approximately around 720 B.C., to this point in what God revealed to Israel through Moses and the prophets, that title anointed has only ever been used for a prophet or a priest or a king that God raised up for His people. Um, he's never used it for a Gentile. Now, even though I'm a Gentile, I think if I had lived in Isaiah's day, my re response would have been, you know what? I vote for a different shepherd. How about a Jewish shepherd for the Jewish people? That's what I'm voting for, right? And now, the people of Isaiah's day, they didn't know this, but when Cyrus came on the scene, you see that God says a couple of times here, even though you haven't known me, uh, when Cyrus came on the scene, he was not a worshiper of Yahweh. He was a pagan, idolatrous, uncircumcised, immoral king. He was not like this great, virtuous person when he came on the scene. And uh, I might have been tempted to say later on, if I was from a later generation in Israel, uh, say something like, I don't know. If someone has the title, the Lord's anointed, I just sort of expect them to be a little bit more of an upstanding person, you know? Uh, call me a perfectionist about it. That's just sort of an expectation. It's a value I have. And so, the, the issue is this, this Cyrus plan is not going to be a plan that's popular with the people of Isaiah's day. Now, the problem with those objections that I just gave you, the problem with that way of thinking is that it misses one of the main points that Isaiah has been making in this book, and that is that Yahweh is not just the God of Israel. He's the God of every nation, of every ethnicity, of every people group, and if He wants to raise up a Gentile and use that Gentile for His purposes, He's free to do that. And he doesn't have to answer to anybody for that or justify it. He's God. He can do that if he wants to do that. Even though uh, from the time of his covenant with Abraham, we see him working primarily with Abraham and his descendants, and, and, and especially after Jacob, right, the people of Israel, and they're his chosen people, it doesn't mean that he can't use Gentiles 
for His purposes. And so, that's the problem with those kinds of objections. God is going to raise up Cyrus. He's going to use him to play a remarkable role in shepherding Israel in his generation and also being a judge of the other surrounding nations in the ancient Near East. Proverbs 21 verse 1 teaches, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of Yahweh. He turns it wherever He wishes. And I think you see that demonstrated in the life of Cyrus. His swift career of unbroken military successes was the marvel of the ancient world. Uh, neither the collective strength of nations, nor the crafty leadership of opposing kings, nor city gates could stop him. The empire that Cyrus created or that rather we should say God helped Cyrus create. The, the kingdom that God helped Cyrus create was the largest kingdom in the world to that point in history. The people who lived in the ancient Near East had never seen a kingdom before that that was so large as the one Cyrus the Great created. And once Cyrus the Great uh, consolidated his power over the Babylonian kingdom and over the city of Babylon, God inclined his heart towards the Jews with kindness to release them and to let them go free. I don't know how much you know about ancient Near Eastern kings, but when they take something, they don't give it back, right? When they conquer something, they don't turn around and just give it away. But what will Cyrus do? Cyrus will allow 42,000 Jewish exiles to go free, and he'll even offer to pay for the rebuilding of their temple out of his royal treasury. This is God's plan for Cyrus. Now, why would God do this? Why is He, why is he delivering His people this way? Why this Cyrus plan? We'll look at verses 4 and 5. God explains, for the sake of Jacob my servant and Israel my chosen one, I've called you, Cyrus, by your name. I've given you a title and honor, though you've not known me. I'm Yahweh, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me. So, Yahweh will raise up Cyrus for the sake of Israel. He'll do it for their temporal good to restore them back to their land. He's also going to do it for their spiritual good so that when they see this prophecy come to pass, they'll, re they'll realize, wow, Yahweh is real and He's the only true God. Now, notice that in verses 4 and 5, both verses end with God saying to Cyrus, though you have not known me. The idea there is, you haven't acknowledged me. You haven't known me savingly. You're not, you, you haven't become a true worshiper of me. Um, when he came on the scene, Cyrus was not a worshiper of Yahweh. And yet, God had purposes for Cyrus that were twofold. First of all, he planned to use Cyrus to achieve great things on the world stage. But secondly, this specific plan was God's way for Cyrus to come to know the true God. Uh, if you remember in the book of Jonah, right, God had a great missionary plan for Jonah, but if you pay close attention to the story, you begin to see that, hey, God isn't just using this prophet to try and redeem people from Nineveh. He's trying to capture Jonah's heart as well right? That's what's going on in the book of Jonah. He's not just after rescuing Ninevites. He's also after Jonah's heart. 
uh, because Jonah doesn't share his heart for lost Gentiles. That's what God is doing in Jonah. Well, this, you see the same dynamic happening here with Cyrus. Yes, he's going to use Cyrus for great things, but this is also a way that God is trying to get a hold of Cyrus's heart and bring him to saving faith. Now, historians tell us that Cyrus took a great interest in religion. He took a great interest in religion and spirituality. He studied the various religions that were popular in not only in the nation he grew up in, but the surrounding nations of his day. In fact, we're told by the Jewish historian Josephus that Cyrus learned about this very prophecy from the Isaiah scroll in Babylon and that uh, he wanted to fulfill this prophecy and that that's behind his decree to let the Jews go. In fact, you can read Cyrus's decree to let the Jews return to Jerusalem, and in that decree, he really appears to acknowledge Yahweh as the creator of the whole world and the Lord over all nations. You can read about that for yourself in Ezra chapter 1. Um, but Cyrus, in the end, we know this from history, in the end, Cyrus chose to be a worshiper of Marduk. And uh, on the Cyrus cylinder, it's, it's part of archaeology we've pulled up, on the Cyrus cylinder, uh, there's an inscription where Cyrus portrays himself as being chosen by Marduk because of his own virtue and strength and his own leadership skills. So, Cyrus believed in… Uh, by the way, uh, for those of you who love the doctrines of grace, uh, so Cyrus believed that Marduk elected him, but it was a conditional election based on how wonderful he was. That's why Marduk looked down and saw how great he was, and so it was a conditional election in his case. And uh, it, it's, the reason I'm descending into this is because it's important for you and I who know the end of the Cyrus story to stop and say, it could have been different. There was a doorway open for Cyrus to know the living God, but in the end, he chose Marduk. Yet, in spite of that rejection, Yahweh still used Cyrus to do good to Israel, and He meant it for good for more than just Israel's sake. Look at verse 6 again that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun, there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. That phrase, from the rising to the setting of the sun, it's just a poetic way of talking about the whole world. Prophetic prophecy fulfilled in history is a great apologetic for Yahweh as the one true God, right? The, the false gods, the, the gods of all the other nations and the idols, they don't make very specific prophecies about the future and then bring them to pass. And so, fulfilled prophecy is one of the apologetics God is using to show people that He is the true and living God, and He's doing this to make Himself known to all people. But there's another sense in which this prophecy with Cyrus was fulfilled, uh, as in terms of a blessing to all people and helping all people know that Yahweh is the true God. It's not just that God called His shot ahead of time and then made it happen. We can read about that in history. But there's another way in which this prophecy did good to all the people of the earth. In human terms, it was because of Cyrus that the Jewish people survived the captivity as an intact people group 
through whom Jesus could come and verifiably be a descendant of David, right, with the genealogies they, they kept, he could verifiably be a descendant of David and become the Savior of the world. And so, Cyrus played a crucial role in sustaining the ancestral line through which Messiah would come. We could say that in part, not in the whole, but in part, we have Cyrus to thank for the line uh, that runs from David to Jesus uh, being preserved. God had big plans for Cyrus through which He intended to draw Cyrus to Himself and bless the Jewish people and also call Gentiles to faith in Him. And I believe what's going on here is that Cyrus brings, uh, excuse me, Yahweh brings this section to a climax in verse 7 with these words, uh, I am the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am Yahweh who does these things. If there's any doubt about His uniqueness and power, Yahweh claims for Himself in verse 7 that He is all-powerful, especially over two areas, right? Nature and history. Yahweh is the Creator. He's ultimately responsible for everything in nature from light to darkness, and He's ultimately responsible for everything in history, including fortune and misfortune, well-being and calamity. God is sovereign over His world, including mankind and nations. He can bring calamity on a nation, like sending Judah into captivity. He can bring blessing and well-being on a nation, like He intended to do to the Jewish people through Cyrus. God can do either of those. Now, so far in the book of Isaiah, we've seen God's holiness, we've seen God's justice, we've seen God's love uh, in the prophesied chosen one that He's promised to send to be a Savior from our sins. But this verse now introduces a new attribute or perfection of God for us to wrestle with, and that is the sovereignty of God. And it's not just that God is sovereign over nature, He is sovereign over history and over our lives. And so, we need to stop here and say a few words about this. As a pastor, I will confess to you that God's sovereignty is flat-out tough. It's a tough doctrine. Um, it's, it is hard to come to terms with. And one of the reasons it's hard to come to terms with is because, at least in my understanding, when I read about God's sovereignty in Scripture, I hear God saying things in essence like, I'm God and you're not. Sometimes I'll answer your questions. Sometimes I won't. And I'm not going to tell you why I'm not answering your questions sometime. I've given, uh, in, in my self-revelation in the Bible, I've given you answers to the most important questions any human being can ever ask. But I'm not going to give you answers to every single question you have. I'm not going to appear to you visibly to make my uh, existence obvious to you. And I'm not going to dance to your tune. I require you to come to me by faith, right? What does the author of Hebrews say? That those who want to please God must believe that He exists, and they must uh, also believe that He is the rewarder of those who seek Him. One of the things that's difficult about God's sovereignty isn't just that He brings calamity, that's one side of it, it's also that He requires faith on our part. God's sovereignty is tough. I would even go so far as to say, I believe the doctrine of God's sovereignty is a dangerous doctrine in the sense that if it's wrongly understood, it can harden the heart and sour even the most sincere, devout faith. 
but I also believe that rightly understood, God's sovereignty brings a satisfaction in God that is unattainable any other way. Uh, and let's take calamity, right? Because the thing that everybody… It, it's, it's, actually, <laughs> it's actually a little bit ironic that God is wanting to do good. He's telling them ahead of time He's going to do good for the people through Cyrus, not evil. Uh, uh, he's the one who is doing good in this passage, and yet the very fact that He says, I create calamity, that, I think that causes all of us to freak out. I freak out when I read that, okay? Uh, I'm, I'm happy for Him to bring well-being. Yeah, pile it on, but the moment He brings calamity. So, the, the rebuke Job gives his wife is good for me, right? Shall we accept good from the Lord and not adversity? Um, that's, there's a foolishness in that. And uh, so, uh, let me speak for a moment to calamity, and I'll apply it to myself. The sovereignty of God means that if I experience calamity, it's not because someone has thwarted the good intentions of an affectionate but ineffective grandfather God. That's not what's going on. My well-being or misfortune solely exists as my… it exists as part of my relationship with the one true God. So, when God brings calamity into my life, it could be that that calamity is sparing me from some temptation I would face if everything always went my way. It could be uh, that He's humbling me. It could be that He's using that to try and get my attention because I haven't been paying attention to Him or seeking Him. It could be that the calamity is actually a consequence of me sinning against His moral or natural law. That's a possibility. Or it could be that He's allowed calamity into my life for reasons that go unexplained, that He's not going to reveal to me until the next life. If you remember the story of Job, God never explains the backstory to Job. He doesn't give him an explanation, right? And, but the point I want to make is this. My misfortune is not in spite of God. It's there because God has allowed it and I believe based on Scripture, He intends to use it for the good of my soul in the long run if I'll trust Him. Uh, now, I understand those are big words. That's a big commitment to take, that, that make, that takes some faith. But I would also ask you, brothers and sisters, what's the alternative? The alternative is to believe that we live in a cosmos where God is good, but He's ineffective, and collectively, Satan, demons, the powerful, the wealthy, the criminals, and the drunk drivers, they all share a collective sovereignty over the world. See, the, the problem with trying to get around God's sovereignty as if you're going to help Him with His public relations and preserve His goodness, the problem with that is that it then creates this situation where my anger and my bitterness and my questionings are dealing with people who are… they're dealing with twerps who are lower on the totem pole. The conspiracy does go all the way to the top. We need to wrestle with God and the things that He allows into our lives. I think that's so much healthier for us than denying His sovereignty to try to preserve some goodness and then dealing with other people instead of going to our Heavenly Father and questioning why and wrestling with it. And I would say this, it's a hard doctrine. Again, I wrestle with it, but I believe God's sovereignty is our friend if we'll get to know God as He's revealed Himself to be in Scripture, because I do think He's trustworthy. And it also is your friend if you'll define it biblically, and I think that's the hard part. Now, I do think that His sovereign goodness 
is actually the exact point that verse 8 is making. God doesn't just leave a strong exclamation point about His sovereignty, verse 7, and just leave it hanging there all by itself. I believe verse 8 is related. He says, "'Drip down, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds pour down righteousness. Let the earth open up, and salvation bear fruit, and righteousness spring up with it. I, Yahweh, have created it.'" What's going on there? He's saying, my sovereignty is the sovereignty that creates righteousness on earth and the plan of salvation. I mean, think about it. The, the, the offer of salvation to sinners, that wasn't created by the collective ingenuity of mankind. That was a plan God came up with, right? And same thing with righteousness. God is the wellspring of all righteousness on earth. His salvation in our own lives has helped us live uh, a righteous life that we never could have on our own. Um, and so, God is exercising His sovereignty for our good. Yes, He has allowed evil to exist for a time, but it's temporary. That's the thing about when we think about the problem of evil. Evil is temporary. There is a day coming when He will vanquish all evil and create a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem where there's no more death or suffering uh, or sin or pain. And I believe as we look back with the perspective of eternity future, we will actually justify God for having allowed the world to be this way and for having allowed evil to exist for a time because we'll begin to understand, again with the perspective of eternity, that God's plan for redemption was infinitely more glorious than creating a world where, where bravery and perseverance and sacrificial love and uh, redeeming mercy were never necessary because nothing bad ever happened. I believe we'll justify God for allowing what has happened to happen. Now, that commitment on my part, I will freely confess it does take faith, but I don't think it takes a blind faith. I think it's a reasonable faith, but I do want to concede it takes faith. But some people uh, won't be swayed by arguments like the commitment I've made. Some people won't be swayed by seeing the goodness of God uh, in His creation, His kindness to the just and the unjust, right? James 1, uh, He's the Father of lights through whom every good and perfect gift comes. Verse 8, He is the divine wellspring of all righteousness and salvation on earth. Some people are not satisfied by that, and so God gives two parables. Now, again, you don't get to see the response to Israel, but based on what God is saying through Isaiah, and based on what we've already seen with the way people have responded to Isaiah's ministry, you can anticipate that the people of Judah in Isaiah's day didn't like this Cyrus plan, and they, and, uh, they didn't necessarily think of God's sovereignty as a friend. And so, look at what God says in verses 9 and 10. "'Woe to the one who quarrels with his Maker,' an earthenware vessel among the vessels of the earth. Will the clay really say to the potter, what are you doing? Or the thing you are making say, he has no hands? Woe to the one who says to his father, what are you begetting? Or to his mother, to what are you giving birth? Allow me to clarify two things about these verses. First of all, these verses are not portraying a person of honest faith in the middle of their pain crying out, and confusion, crying out in confusion, asking legitimate questions 
of God. If you want to see examples of that in Scripture, you can go to the Psalms, the prophets. You even see that in Jesus, right? Like the, the questions His disciples and other people ask Him. Not the questions the Pharisees ask when they're trying to trap Him, right? But, but the legitimate questions people ask Jesus. Those are also good examples of people asking questions in faith. That's not what's going on here. The tone of the questions is made clear by the word quarrels. This is someone quarreling with God. This is someone arguing with God. The second thing I, I want to observe about these verses is that they are Hebrew poetry, and Hebrew poetry is a lot harder to translate than uh, Hebrew narrative. It's just, it's just a lot harder. And so, what our translators have chosen to do is they've chosen to take a very literal approach where they take one Hebrew word and try to find an English counterpart and just bring that Hebrew word into English and then let you and I wrestle with what the poetry could mean. Uh, that's what they were trying to do in their translation. But what happens is, I think the meaning of these words gets lost on a contemporary English-speaking audience. The idea that the poetry is communicating is this, putting God under suspicious scrutiny accusing him and then condemning him is like a clay pot saying to its maker, what, are, what in the world are you doing? It looks like whoever made me didn't have hands. Uh, what's going on here? This kind of quarreling with God is like an infant coming out of the womb and saying to the father, what on earth are you begetting? And saying to his mother, what could you have possibly been thinking in giving birth to me? Now, notice I made a mistake here in my sermon. Notice, I said, I said questions earlier. Notice that these aren't questions. There's no questions going on here. These are statements. These are belittling, insulting statements that make judgments about God. And so, when Isaiah uses the word woe at the beginning of verse 9 and 10, he's, uh, the word woe, there's a sense of horror. There's a sense of shock. There's a sense of the seriousness of what's going on. A persistent, judgmental, angry disagreement with God's plan for the world and your life is a refusal to let God be God. It's a reversal of roles in which the creature tries to make the Creator into His servant uh, and get the Creator to do the creature's plans. That's what's going on here. Now, again, I do want to clarify. I want to be balanced. Not every question we have about God's plans and ways constitutes rebellion. And again, you can see uh, lots of examples of people in confusion asking questions of God in the Psalms, in the prophets, in Job. Uh, you can see it uh, again in the life of Jesus. Um, you can even see it in the way that the apostles answers, answer people's questions in their letters, and you can anticipate the kinds of questions people in the churches we're asking. That's not what's going on here. This is a, a persistent refusal to let God be God. This is coming from a heart that won't allow God to define uh, the relationship and how we enter into relationship with Him. It, it won't allow God to define our relationship on His terms. And what it is, is it's a losing argument. It's an argument we're going to lose as the creation, as the creature, but it's also an argument that leads to spiritual death. So, how does God respond to this? We'll look at verse 11. Thus says Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel uh, and His Maker, 
Ask me about the things to come concerning my sons, and you shall commit to me the work of my hands. Again, this is poetry. I think it's a little bit hard to interpret these words. Uh, Because it's poetry, one of the things Hebrew poetry does is it opens up the option of communicating uh, multiple things, having a double meaning at the same time. And you actually could interpret these verses, I believe, in three different ways poetically. Uh, If you want to interpret these words sarcastically, and there are times in the Old Testament where you can find God and His prophets using sarcasm. It's not all the time, but it does happen periodically. If you uh, interpret these words sarcastically, they come out like this. Feel free to tell me what to do about my children Israel and what to do with the work of my hands. Uh, Interpreted as a challenge, the sense of the words is, go ahead and command me about my children and the work of my hands, right? After all, I'm only your creator. In fact, why don't you command me, and let's see if that works for you to command me, and if I'm going to listen to what you say. That would be like the challenge. And then without, without any sarcasm, the sense of the words would be this, how dare you tell me what to do with my children Israel? How dare you tell me what to do with the work of my hands? And, and look at what he says next in verse, uh, in verse 12. It's I who've made the earth, and I created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands, and I ordained all their hosts. Remember when you look at verse 12, that's not just God saying, hey, I'm the one who created all things. He's saying this in the context of the argument. He's saying this in the context of responding to the belittling judgments that the children of Judah are making on him. And so, what, what the import of verse 12 is, is... Uh, I lost my place in my notes. Uh, The import is this. Look, I'm the one who created all things. Like, I'm God, you're not. And the way you're talking to me, it's like you're not understanding I'm God and you're not. Uh, I'm the one who made all things, not you. You didn't even create yourself. You didn't make yourself. I made you. That's what he's saying. You're You're not treating me as the one who created all things. That's what's going on in verse 12. I think there's even a sense of stop condemning me. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't have enough information. You don't know the whole plan. You don't know what you're talking about. And then God returns to the main point of this prophecy uh, by speaking of Cyrus in verse 13, but he, he, notice he speaks of Cyrus in the third person. I've aroused him, Cyrus, in righteousness, and I will make all his ways smooth, and he will build my city and will let my exiles go free without any payment or reward, says the Lord of hosts. So, when Cyrus comes on the scene, he will have absolutely no financial incentive whatsoever to let the Jewish exiles go free. He'll have no reward whatsoever uh, on, in human terms for rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem, and yet, that's what he'll do. That's what God will turn his heart to do for Israel. And that word righteousness, verse 13, the the first verse of the sentence, that doesn't mean Cyrus will be a particularly righteous person when he comes on the scene. That's talking about the righteousness of God's plan in using Cyrus this way. God is doing the right thing by using Cyrus in this way to bless his people. Now, I've applied these words to our own lives and to our own struggle to rejoice in God's sovereignty. But I do want to stop for a moment, just think with me about what the big picture of these words meant for the people of Judah. 
uh, they're going to go into a captivity that will then lead to a second exodus. And what was the first exodus like? Well, if you remember, they were given Moses, the greatest of all prophets who gave them the law. There were, you know, there was… Uh, uh, a river turned to blood, and there was the fireworks of hail that came down with fire and all kinds of miracles. But what will the second exodus, the exodus from Babylon, be like? Well, there won't be any fireworks. There won't be any signs and wonders. Uh, there won't be uh, the prophet who's greater than Moses. That prophet isn't coming till later in the form of the Lord Jesus Christ. No, instead, what God is going to do is use the subtle workings of His providence behind the scenes uh, in the court of Cyrus the Great to deliver His people. Now, if you're a Jewish person listening to this prophecy, that doesn't sound like a great plan, right? And there is an irony in it because God is doing good, but it doesn't sound like a great plan, uh, right? There's a desire to have, uh, you know, a great prophet, uh, lots of miracles, and this Cyrus guy, he's not even a particularly uh, righteous or moral person, uh, and yet that's what God is going to do. Um, and I could see very easily in Judah there being two objections to the whole Cyrus plan. One objection is, well, I don't think we've done anything bad enough to be sent into exile, right? That would be one objection. The second objection would be, yeah, we've made some mistakes, we haven't really kept the covenant, but, you know, this Cyrus plan, I don't like it. It gives us a Gentile deliverer, uh, and also in the end we get like a governor assigned by Persia. We don't have someone who's a descendant of David reigning on the throne, treating with other nations as an equal. Instead, we have Gentile nations dominating us from afar, giving us a delegated authority locally, but dominating us from afar. This Cyrus plan is the death knell of our hope for an independent Jewish nation. And the answer to both of those objections is, according to God, you do deserve to go into exile, and also, God is breaking your national mold for His purposes and bringing in the times of the Gentiles, and He has a purpose in bringing in the times of the Gentiles. Now, combined with the prophecy of the coming Babylonian captivity, that was chapter 39 of Isaiah, and this Cyrus prophecy, I think this was a prophecy that was hard for the people of Judah to hear. And it's a hard prophecy for you and I to reckon with, because once we understand its meaning to its original audience, it makes clear the unmistakable point of God's sovereignty uh, that undergirds the whole situation and the prophecy that will be fulfilled. And so, I would ask you, brothers and sisters, uh, to take a moment of honesty here. Have you made peace with God's sovereignty and blessed Him for His plans for you? Can you say, thankfully and honestly to the Lord, you control my lot in life and I wouldn't have it any other way? Can you say that and really mean it? Or are you still arguing about what his, with Him about what His sovereignty has produced in your romantic life, that you're single or that you're married to that person and there's certain things you don't like about that person? Um, are you questioning him about the family you were born into? It was a clear disadvantage to be born into the family you were born into. Are you questioning him about the children he's given you or the disappointing outcome of the career that you worked so hard at? Or, or the body with its limitations that he's given you? Are you still arguing with God? Um, I think that's natural. I don't think it's necessarily evil, depending on the tone of it. But I would also add, God intends 
all of these things for your good. God said to Cyrus that He created this exact plan for Cyrus's life, verse 3, so that you may know that it is I, Yahweh, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. And what God said to Cyrus, the Holy Spirit is now saying to you, your life has been ordered by God's sovereign plan so that you may know that it is I, Yahweh, who calls you by your name. His call on your life is to be reconciled to Him through Christ. It's also to bow the knee to His sovereignty and to thank Him for His wise plan. He is good, and He does good, and He's been good to you. He hasn't treated you according to what your sins deserve, but according to His mercy. And His sovereignty has borne the good fruit, verse 8, of salvation, the offer of salvation that you've received, uh, and uh, the blessings, every spiritual blessing that we have through the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I confess, again, God's sovereignty is a difficult doctrine to come to terms with, and it's a crucial doctrine to define properly, or it can be really damaging um, to our lives. And so, we need to define it well. We need to wrestle with it. Um, And I commend to you the idea of wrestling with the Lord in prayer, but I would say as you wrestle, recognize even when you look at the calamities, God has been very good to you. To this point, he hasn't, again, He hasn't treated you according to what your sins deserve, but according to, your, to His mercy, He's given you a lot of good gifts, and you have to take that into account as you wrestle with the calamities that He also allows, and that He says He'll use for good. Well, let's pray.